Take your girlie to the movies If you can't make love at home There's no little brother there who always squeals You can do an awful lot in seven reels Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 194. My name's Terry Frost and this time around I've got two movies I really highly recommend. The first one is from 1952 and it is a classic of English literature and the best version of a classic of English literature. And that is Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest starring Michael Redgrave, Joan Littlewood and Margaret Rutherford. And then we go on to 1969 for a movie that I hadn't seen before, but that really impressed me. It stars an actor I've got a lot of time for, Nicole Williamson. And that movie is The Reckoning, which is a blast. also stars Anne Bell and Douglas Wilmer, and I'll talk more about that a little bit later. But first, I'll get the contact details out of the way. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of classic movie appreciation. It appears every two weeks, and the only rule is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Probably not going to do genre films, because genre films go over to the Martian Drive-In podcast, but nonetheless, that's the rule, more than 20 years old. You can contact and offer feedback several ways. The first one is the new feedback email address, feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com you can go to the paleo cinema cafe on facebook and leave feedback there and get updates or you can go to paleo-cinema.blogspot.com and listen to the episodes there and put feedback through this podcast may contain adult materials so please don't listen to it when children are around or when you have your granny over Hi, how is everybody? We're doing fine here. The weather is starting to warm up. The days are starting to get longer, which always lifts my mood. And um, yeah, and I've got a couple of movies this time around that really grabbed me. Um, one, of course, is the classic, The Importance of Being Earnest with Michael Redgrave and uh, Margaret Rutherford. And the other one is a movie that I hadn't heard about, but remember a few episodes ago, I did The Wilby Conspiracy with Sidney Poitier, Michael Caine and... Nicole Williamson and I kind of found a movie of Nicole Williamson's that I hadn't seen called The Reckoning and I watched it last night and immediately decided I'm going to do it for the podcast because it is a superb piece of film and a superb piece of acting so what have I been watching Uh, only two things really come to mind the first one is a 1961 English King Kong ripoff movie called Conga starring Michael Goff. It's incredibly absurd and incredibly silly and ends up with the giant ape being killed near Big Ben, which for some reason is near Croydon High Street. And, um, yeah, it's one of those outrageous early 1960s English kind of science fiction efforts. Uh, <laughs> you got to see it. It's basically silly. I really should do it for a podcast, but I'll get somebody in to do it with me. Uh, volunteers accepted because it is just dumb in the best possible way speaking of which the other the only other thing i saw that i'm going to talk about is a crowdfunded movie that made a million dollars to crowdfund it called cyborg x starring danny trejo who has like 15 words of dialogue in it uh it was crowdfunded it's basically a post-apocalyptic post-singularity thing with drones and killer robots And lots and lots of... Basically, half the film is the good guys shooting at the bad guys with machine guns. 
Um, they have lots of lens flash from the machine guns and the special effects are there, but not one bullet comes out of the machine guns they're using. It's very low budget and very low rent and doesn't add anything new to the genre. There are a couple of nice practical effects and a couple of nice little bits of minor CG to do with people with their heads blown off. But apart from that, I wouldn't really recommend Cyborg X. Danny Trejo seems to be, as an actor in his 70s, getting as much money as he can before uh, inevitably he has to retire. He's cashing checks big time. And all strength to him as well. I like Danny Trejo. But um, I don't particularly recommend Cyborg X. The only other thing I did in the last week or so that's of interest is I went to a country women's association trivia night right over the other side of town, like 70 kilometres away from home. And uh, country women's association is a group of um, women. The organisation has been going for well over 100 years and basically they make cakes and support local charities and um, encourage people to do craft and all sorts of things like that. And also when there's a Sydney or Melbourne agricultural show in, in town they do the best breakfast at the um at the show you go in there and you get this massive plate of bacon and eggs and all sorts of good things like that and um fill yourself up for the um energy requirements of the day but anyway we go to this um, trivia quiz for which our friend sarah encourages to go to because she's joined the CWA and wants to kind of support it. So we go into this little hall out of Baroni or way up in the other end of town and um, they have some really nice snack foods. I mean they really did lay on some nice grub and we start doing all of the trivia things and they're all to do with agricultural stuff so that's not particularly our strong point but we do pretty well and we're coming in second and we're really kind of doing well and then they have a special round which was really cool they wanted as quickly as possible for the teams to list from north to south the capitals the state and territory capitals of australia now i knew this i had this nailed i did it in about seven seconds flat and we won a great big box full of all sorts of weird things like screwdriver sets and other little bits and pieces they come together which made it worthwhile for us um i had a moment of brilliance and kind of went okay darwin brisbane perth sydney canberra adelaide melbourne hobart and um won the prize so we were all kind of happy with that hanging out with friends and just grooving on it. Uh, didn't have any movie trivia, which really pissed me off because we would have nailed a movie trivia, of course. But that wasn't one of the options. And I've told Sarah that if they do that again, they better have a movie trivia around or they're going to have to talk to me about it. But, um, yeah, that's about it. And anyway, um, I think I'm going to do the importance of being earnest first because I really want to spend a little time talking about the reckoning. Uh, I'll just play the trailer for the movie and go into the history of the play the movie is based on, uh, how it came at an unfortunate time in Oscar Wilde's life, and then start talking about the movie itself. Seldom has the cinema united so many outstanding talents in a single motion picture. 
Here is the scintillating, immaculate wit of Oscar Wilde, brilliantly captured on the screen by the artistry of Anthony Asquith and a distinguished cast of stars. The moment Algernon first mentioned to me that your friend called Ernest, I knew I was destined to love you. You really love me, Gwendolyn? Michael Redgrave is the impetuous Jack Worthing. Joan Greenwood is adored, adoring Gwendolyn. And Edith Evans, the outrageous, outraged Lady Bracknell. Miss Worthing! Michael Dennison is the gay, disarming Algernon Moncrief. And Margaret Rutherford, the preposterous Miss Prism. You do not seem to realize, dear doctor, that by persistently remaining single, a man converts himself into a permanent public temptation. <laughs> Uncle Jack won't be back till Monday afternoon. That is a great disappointment. Uh, I am obliged to go up by the first train on Monday morning. Uh, I have a business appointment that I'm anxious to miss. I don't actually know who I am by birth. I was, well, I was found. Found? In a handbag. A handbag? In the cloakroom at Victoria Station. You? Yes. Mama. Mr. Worthing, I am unmarried. The Importance of Being Ernest is a 1952 British comedy based, of course, on the play by Oscar Wilde. It stars Michael Redgrave as John Worthing. Michael Dennison is his friend Algernon Moncrief. Edith Evans as Algernon's auntie, Lady Bracknell. Joan Greenwood as his cousin, Gwendolyn Fairfax. Margaret Rutherford as a nurse, Miss Pym. Miles Mallison as Canon Chaucible, a local vicar. And Dorothy Tootin as Cecily Cardew, who is John Worthing's ward. My history with this, with the play at least, uh, goes back to when my grandmother took me to see it when I was a kid. I had very little external stuff to do with my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, but she knew I was a smart kid and, and was pretty interested in unusual things, and she was very much a, a fan of the importance of being earnest. And even though she had a, a severe hearing impairment, we went down to an amateur theatre production of The Importance of Being Earnest at Rockdale up in Sydney. And we enjoyed it thoroughly. I did shout out a couple of times at the um, players because I was too young and stupid to know that it wasn't television and that people could actually hear you when you yelled out and going, ah, oh, look at the silly lady kind of thing. But I did that and I think I may have embarrassed my grandmother a little bit by doing that. And posthumously I apologised to her. But um, the play got to me, the idea of a man who was found as a baby 
in an overnight bag at Paddington Station. All that kind of stuff was quite interesting. And um, the characters just kind of grabbed me as well. So a number of years ago, I purchased a copy of The Importance of Being Earnest, this 1952 movie directed by Anthony Asquith. And I hadn't watched it. Um, you know how you, you buy DVDs. You put them on the shelf in nice alphabetical order and you don't get around to it. But I kind of thought, well, I want to do something a little bit fun, a little bit different this time around. And so I, I pulled it down from the shelf and watched it, and it was a joy. This is one of those rare movies, because of the play it came from, where most of the dialogue is quotable. All of it is very witty, of course. It's Oscar Wilde, so how could it not be? And the actors are, you can tell, having a very, very good time of it. Uh, even though Dorothy Tootin playing Cecily, it was her first movie role and she was asked for retakes a couple of times because she wasn't quite happy with the way she did it. She was fine in the movie, by the way, until somebody took her aside and told her how much each retake costs. And then she kind of went, oh, okay. And the other problem was Edith Evans playing Lady Bracknell, that fantastically iconic version of Lady Bracknell was a little reluctant to be on screen because she said subconsciously that she thinks the camera should come to her rather than her go to the camera. And it was kind of something she had to overcome psychologically. She didn't hit her marks very well. But nonetheless, it's one of the great comic roles in mid-20th century cinema. And Ian McKellen, who has played Lady Bracknell in a stage version of The Importance of Being Earnest, said that one of the lines that Edith Evans says in the movie, in fact, this one, a handbag, makes it very hard for anybody who subsequently plays Lady Bracknell to play that one line because it was just such a great way of putting across that idea of her being aghast that somebody was found in a handbag. Um, but I'm going to play that again because I really like that reading of the two-word line. A handbag. Now, to do the justice to the plot, I'm going to pinch from Charles Dennis's Criterion essay about the importance of being earnest, which has had a Criterion release. It's not the version I saw, but um, I, I maybe should get it. Um, let's see. Jack Worthing regularly flees his country home for London with the excuse of tending to his scandalous and non-existent brother, younger brother, Ernest. When his best friend Algernon learns of the deception and that Jack has a beautiful young ward named Cicely, whom he keeps stashed away in the country, he sets off to meet her, pretending that he is Ernest. Algernon's cousin Gwendolyn falls in love with Jack and Ernest, not knowing he's Jack, and sets out to the country for a surprise visit. This, of course, all occurs on the day Jack, determined to end the now dangerous charade, arrives at his country house dressed in black to mourn Ernest's passing. And then Lady Bracknell um, comes along and all hell breaks loose. Now, the cast of this is really a joy, even though um, both Michael Redgrave and... Michael Dennison are both about a decade too old to play the roles. They are great at it. Brigrave has a nice, neat little moustache on in this one. And um, he, his facial expressions are a joy to watch in it. Um, Joan Greenwood, who was also in another movie I've talked about in a very much earlier Paleo Cinema podcast, The Man with the White Suit with Alec Guinness, 
plays Gwendolyn, and she's got one of those cut glass English accents. I like Shelton Greenwood a lot in this. Dorothy Tootin, as I said, who had a long and distinguished career as an actor before and after this, plays Cecily. Margaret Rutherford, of course, whom is a joy in everything she's in, plays Miss Prism. Um, and, yeah, just basically the cast works beautifully well. There was um, Anthony Asquith's first movie in colour, and the Technicolour is lovely in this one. The ladies' dresses in particular look good. And... Um, it's, it was filmed at Pinewood Studios, as indeed a lot of other things were filmed. I'm just looking over the career of Anthony Asquith and the movies that he made. There are some good ones in there. Um, and some bad ones, too. He worked on the Yellow Rolls Royce in 1964, the VIPs 1963, with Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, and Rod Taylor, and a young Maggie Smith. That movie I really should do in the future. The Millionaires, that stupid movie with Sophie Loren and... Um, Peter Sellers playing an Indian doctor. Uh, and uh, the Browning version, he did a very good version, the Winslow Boy. Uh, so he, he had a career. It was odd because um, Anthony Asquith was the son of a former Prime Minister, H.H. Asquith, former Prime Minister of England. He was known as Puffin from a very young age because he had a, a beaky kind of nose, a bit like a puffin bird. But he actually... Um, his earliest address was 10 Downing Street because at the time he was born, his father was the Prime Minister of England. He went over to um, America. He lived with Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford for a while. He was very good friends with Charlie Chaplin and came back to the UK to start making silent films in 1928. But later on, um, went on to make kind of classy, distinguished films like The Importance of Being Earnest. Now, Oscar Wilde's play came out in 1895. Uh, one of the things that Sally and I did in Paris is we actually went to the monument for where Oscar Wilde's grave is in, I think it may be Père Lachaise or either that or in um, Cimetière Montmartre. And um, you know, it's an enormous, great thing with a sphinx on it. It's just an impressive monument. But um, the interesting thing is it was a wildly successful um, play. It was the original title of the play in 1895 when it opened on February 14th at the St. James Theatre in London was The Importance of Being Earnest, a Trivial Comedy for Serious People. Uh, now, what the interesting thing was it was successful. It was a well-regarded play at the time. But the opening night was the start of Oscar Wilde's downfall. Um, I'm just kind of paraphrasing here from Wikipedia. Um, the Marquis of Queensbury, whose son, Lord Alfred Douglas, was Wilde's lover, planned to present the writer with a bouquet of rotting vegetables and disrupt the show. Someone tipped Wilde off about Queensbury and he was refused admission to the cinema, or to the theatre, sorry. Soon afterward, their feud came to a climax in court when Wilde's homosexual double life was revealed to the Victorian public and he was eventually sentenced to imprisonment. His notoriety caused the play, despite its early success, to be closed after 86 performances. After his release, he published a play from exile in Paris, but he wrote no further comic or dramatic work. Of course, the, the major thing he wrote after this was The Ballad of Reading Jail, which I recommend you read um, if you haven't already. It's all in the public domain. In fact, you can get um, a ebook version of the play, The Importance of Being Earnest, from... Gutenberg.org. 
But the movie is wonderful. The characters are patently absurd. You've got one guy, Jack, who's pretending to be Ernest when he's in London so he can live an outrageous life without the people at his country home realising that he's a reprobate when he's in London. Then you've got Algernon, who goes off to the country to ostensibly visit a friend called Bunbury, who is chronically ill. Bunbury, of course, doesn't exist. And so he goes off to the country to kind of sow his wild oats and be outrageous and do all of the things the Victorian society says that young men who are single or even men who are married can't do. So you've got these two guys, each leading secret lives quite happily. And um, both of them kind of tell each other the secret after Jack loses his cigar case and... Algernon finds it and it's got the wrong name in it and then Jack has to explain to Algernon exactly what's happening with his secret life. Then they both, of course, go off to the country home of Jack Worthing and the mistaken identity thing about Ernest, the fact that Jack loves Gwendolyn, whose formidable aunt, Lady Bracknell, who has incredibly high expectations of Gwendolyn's marriage and who is so very much um, aware and kind of impeded by what she thinks society wants of her and wants of nice people in society. Um, And then she finds out, of course, that Jack was found in a handbag at Paddington Station. Um, It's just that kind of... It's a comedy of manners in a lot of ways. It's lampoons the silliness of the constraints of Victorian society, something of which, of course, Oscar Wilde was intensely aware. And it also has some sly digs at some people as well. One in particular, um, Jack at one stage says that his last name is Worthing because a, a train ticket to Worthing was found in the valise he was found in. And so the kind, wealthy man who adopted him gave him the last name of Worthing. Now, this is actually a sly dig at the family of the Marquess of Queensbury because the Marquess of Queensbury's wife had a home in the town of Bracknell and hence the name Lady Bracknell came about. So the play was crazily controversial at the time and, in fact, the producers of the play tried to restage it while Oscar Wilde was going through the trials with um, the Marquess of Queensbury and took Wilde's name off the marquee and off the play in an order to try to save the play because they knew it was a good play. They Obviously, Oscar had financial problems based on the legal costs of his court trials. They were trying to help out. But it wasn't successful. People knew it was an Oscar Wilde play. And after that 86 performances, it wasn't played again for a while. Now, I really like that. I think Oscar Wilde would like this too. I really like the fact that Lady Brechtel is quite often these days played by male actors. There was a 2011 production of The Importance of Being Earnest where somebody I've actually seen in real life played Lady Brechtel, and that is the Australian actor Geoffrey Rush, who I've really got to try to find an early Geoffrey Rush film to do for Paleo Cinema Podcast. Maybe Shine. Shine is now 20 years old. So maybe I should um, look at doing that for a future uh, paleo cinema. Because I do like Geoffrey Rush as an actor. I think he's an actor that does bold, 
choices in some of his acting. Him playing Peter Sellers, of course, is absurd because he's about a foot taller than Peter Sellers ever was and looks nothing like him, but he was in The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. And I think that even though he was in the stupid Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, Jeffrey Rush is one of those actors who I've always got time for. I was just looking up a little more of the history of the importance of being earnest. The Australian premiere was here in Melbourne in August 19, 1895. Well, I was going to say 1985, but no, it was 1895. And the play was successful here in Australia. Wilde's downfall in England did not affect the popularity of his plays in Australia at all. And that kind of makes me a little bit proud that that's the case. I really think that... Um, the English were up themselves as far as Oscar Wilde is concerned, just as much as Oscar Wilde was up Bosey, boom, tish. And, um, yeah, it's really... Uh, that's another movie I should really do. There's a couple of movies about the trials of Oscar Wilde. There's one with Peter Finch playing Oscar Wilde, and there's another with Robert Morley. The Peter Finch one was The Trials of Oscar Wilde, and the Robert Morley one, which was from... 1960, as indeed was the trials of Oscar Wilde, is just called Oscar Wilde. Then, of course, there's that 1990s adaptation starring Stephen Fry, who's the perfect person to play Oscar Wilde in a movie. And that one, too, is, is a very fine piece of cinema. But I think it would be very much a shame to remember Oscar Wilde only for the misfortunes of ignorance and homophobia that clouded the, his later life from 1895 onwards. It'd be really um, a, a disservice to the man to do that. Uh, the picture of Dorian Gray, uh, Lady Windermere's fan, all of those other things that he did, and in fact a lot of his poetry as well, show that the man wasn't his tragedies. The tragedies were things imposed upon him. He could have gone on for another 20 years giving everybody creative, fun, satirical, and incredibly well-written works of art if his health and his spirit hadn't been broken by his time in Reading Jail. So his legacy is still very much alive. People still redo his plays. There are any number of Dorian Gray renditions being put out there. So Oscar Wilde's legacy does live on. And in particular, this version of The Importance of Being Earnest, which is silly, frothy, fun... The dialogue just sparkles. It's beautifully read by the actors. Uh, the sets are, are beautifully designed. The clothing looks great. And the ensemble just seems to be having a hell of a lot of fun doing it. And for that reason alone, it's a movie worth revisiting. The version I got, I think I got for $5, but I may have to upgrade to the Criterion version soon because it's just worth that. There are... This is something I find increasingly as I do the podcast. There are movies that I've got you know, fairly bare-bones versions of. And then I talk about them on Paleo Cinema or indeed on Martian Drive-In Podcast. And suddenly I want to kind of give more money to them in a sense and upgrade the version I've got. Suddenly I were having a chat about owning movies last night. And here's something that I've kind of been thinking of for a while. Yes, there are streaming services. You can have Spotify to stream audio. You can have Netflix and Stan and Presto here in Australia and Hulu in America and all those other things. But the interesting thing about it is 
You pay for this stuff. You pay for a monthly subscription. If you discontinue the subscription, you know... Why am I whistling suddenly? If you discontinue the subscription, and I did it again then, then you lose access to the things you paid for. You never actually have a permanent copy of those works. Whereas if I buy a DVD or a Blu-ray or a CD or a licorice pizza vinyl... I've got them. They can't be taken away from me except by theft or arson. And, you know, I've paid money. I've received a physical artefact that I can use, I can lend out to people. I can do all of those things too. Whereas the streaming services of various kinds, all you do is have temporary access to things. And if you get pissed off with that streaming service or you lose the ability to pay for the monthly subscription, which happens to some people, then you lose access to the art that you paid for. And I find that a bit problematic. There are some things I don't mind streaming, but there are other things that I appreciate enough to pay that bit extra and actually own a copy of. But that's perhaps my little rant for the podcast. And just, I will give Lady Bracknell the final word on the importance of being earnest because it's just the best spoken line of humour in cinema history. And back. And when I get back, from, we're going to do another British movie, very different from 17 years later, and it is the 1969 um, drama starring Nicole Williamson and Anne Bill, The Reckoning. Directed by Jack Gold. And all this business of above, yes, light, yes, skies, yes, a little blue, yes, a little white, yes, the earth turning, yes, bright and less bright, yes, little scenes, yes, all balls, yes, the women, yes, the dog, yes, the prayers, yes, the homes, yes, all balls, yes. And this business of a procession, no answer. This business of a procession, yes, never any procession, no, nor any journey, no, never anyone, no, only me, no answer, only me, yes. So that was true, yes, it was true about me, yes. And what's my name, no answer, what's my name, screams, good. Only me, in any case, yes, alone, yes, in the mud, yes, in the dark, yes, that holds, yes, the mud in the dark hold, yes, nothing to regret there, no. With my sack, no, I beg your pardon, no. No sack either, no, not even a sack with me, no. Only me, yes, alone, yes, with my voice, yes, my murmur, yes. When the panting stops, yes, all that holds, yes, panting, yes, worse and worse, no answer, worse and worse, yes. Flat on my belly, yes, in the mud, yes, the dark, yes, nothing to amend there, no. The arms spread, yes, like a cross, no answer, like a cross, no answer, yes or no, yes. Gets worse. Never crawled, no. In an amble, no. Right leg, right arm, push, pull. Ten, fifteen yards, no. Never stirred, no. Never made to suffer, no. Never suffered, no answer. Never suffered, no. No aban- Never abandoned, no. Never was abandoned, no. So that's life here, no answer. That's my life here. Screams, good. Alone in the mud, yes. The dark, yes. Sure, yes. Panting, yes. Someone hears me, no. No one hears me, no. Murmuring sometimes, yes. When the panting stops, yes. Not at other times, no. In the mud, yes. The mud, yes. My voice, yes. Mine, yes. Not on others, no. Mine alone, yes. Sure, yes. When the panting stops, yes. On and off, yes. A few words, yes. A few. Scr- Yes, that no one hears. No, but no, less and less. No answer. Less and less. Yes. So things may change. No answer. End. No answer. I may choke. No answer. Sink. No answer. Sully the mud. No more. No answer. The dark. No answer. Trouble the peace. No more. No answer. The silence. No answer. Die. No answer. Die. Screams. I may die. Screams. I shall die. Screams. Good. Good, good. End at last of part three, and that's how it was. End of quotation, how it is. That was Nicole Williamson reading Samuel Beckett's All That Fall. Uh, on television, he was being interviewed and then suddenly just went into one of the most brilliant renditions of a poem I've ever seen on a television program. 
Williamson was a, an intensely depressed man at times. He was an alcoholic at times. He really um, had a lot of personal issues. He was incredibly talented and incredibly dedicated to his art. He pushed people away. He challenged people. He Basically, the best way to understand who Nicole Williamson was is A, to watch his movies, which are brilliant and his acting is never less than riveting and also in Kenneth Tyner's book The Sound of Two Hands Clapping which I mentioned the previous time I've talked about Nicole Williamson there's an essay called Nicole Williamson The Road to the White House where Tynan follows Williamson around as he prepares to go to the White House and do a performance for Richard Nixon at the White House and this movie that I'm about to talk about The Reckoning does get a little bit of a brief mention in Tynan's essay which does, um, he talks to a number of friends and, and co-workers and professionals who work with Williamson and gives us the clearest picture possible of this kind of troubled but immensely talented man now The Reckoning, a 1969 film based on a novel but directed by Jack Gold um, is a movie that can bear comparison with a movie like Get Carter, it's got a similar theme to it but it takes it in a different direction. It takes it from a different ideological viewpoint as well. I found this in on BritMovie.co.uk and it pretty much sums it up really interestingly. Tough but troubled businessman Michael Marler, Nicole Williamson, is a lower-class Liverpudlian of Irish descent who has clawed his way to the top of the London business world and become trapped in a loveless marriage to wealthy wife Rosemary, played by Anne Bell, his marriage consists of little more than animalistic lovemaking in between traded insults and long silences. When he learns his father is dying, he returns to Liverpool and is forced to deal with the sizable chip on his shoulder. Returning to his roots and the former terrace house where he lived with his parents, Myler observes bruises over his now-deceased father's body. He discovers that his father had been in a bar brawl with a gang of teddy boys who were spewing anti-Irish abuse. Whilst awaiting his father's funeral, Marla returns to London, but his increasingly abrasive behaviour puts his job and his marriage in jeopardy. He ventures back to Liverpool and feels torn by his working-class roots and a desire to avenge his father and the more liberal demands of his middle-class ambition. He finally decides to take revenge against a particular teenager who attacked his father. The man who wrote the screenplay for the movie was a guy called John McGrath, who was a long-term friend of Nicole Williamson. And uh, here's what Tynan says about McGrath uh, on Williamson in The Reckoning. McGrath's most recent collaboration with Nicole had been on the film called The Reckoning. The role, again written with Nicole in mind, is that of a ruthless, thuggish company director from the slums of Liverpool. This is um, now... McGrath talking. Nick's commitment to the character was total. He identified with it so much that he nearly overbalanced the picture. The thing about Nick is that he really likes the jungle. That's where he lives. And he's, I found just had this really great quote from Pauline Kale about Nicole Williamson. Um, in January 1970, she wrote in The New Yorker, Nicole Williamson is a violently self-conscious actor whose effect on the camera is like that of the singers who used to shatter crystal. He goes from being graciously virile to being repulsively masochistic. And, whichever it is, he's too much. Nicole Williamson is always brilliant and dazzling. He is brilliant, he is dazzling, yet he's awful. Probably the worst major and greatly gifted actor on the English-speaking screen today. It's a well-reasoned viewpoint, but it's one that, with which I disagree, obviously, because I'm talking about a Nicole Williamson movie on the podcast. Williamson has Mick Marler, this kind of 
ticking time bomb of a man who's brilliant at his work. He works for a company that makes business machines. And computers are just coming in as a business accessory. They're still large machines, but they're coming down to the point where smaller, medium businesses can afford one. And the company's sales are dropping, and Mick is an executive in the sales department. So there's a tension around the sales department of this company he works for. And he has to kind of negotiate that politics while still being a working-class man in an upper-class world and being a man who's in a loveless but passionate marriage. And while this tension about the sales slump is going on, he finds out his father's deathly ill. He tells his boss he's got to go up there. The boss asks him to finish a report that's quite important to their business. And he spends another half an hour doing that before he gets in his Bentley and drives maniacally fast and aggressively to Liverpool, missing his father's death by a few minutes. And that's quite important, that tension between his work obligation and his obligation to his mother and his sister and his family and the world that he came from. Mick Marler always drives like that. He's an aggressive driver. He beeps his horn. He wants people to get out of his way. It's part of who he is. He's competitive and he's ruthless in everything he does. And this plays out brilliantly in the upshot at the end of the movie, right at the last scenes of the movie. The way Mick drives is used to emphasise the point about the character and the things that he's gone through in his arc of dealing with his father's death and finding the young thug who beat him up, causing him to have a heart attack and die. Now, Williamson's on a short leash mentally at the best of times during this film. But as he travels up to the north and as you see him going through the rows of terrace houses and the slums, and even in 1969, there are still some World War II bomb sites that haven't been fully um, renovated and restored. And so he pulls up in his Bentley outside this tiny little terrace house where the, he goes and sits on in the lounge room with his mother and there's a crucifix on the wall, they're Irish Catholic and the living room is so small that sitting in armchairs opposite each other he and his mother's knees are almost touching and that's a very important point. So he goes up to his father's room to ask his father if he wants to have a cup of tea and he takes his father's hand and realises he's dead and Nicole Williamson is brilliant in that moment. Just one of the things about Williamson is with that long, kind of lugubrious face he has, every emotion the character feels is something that's portrayed to the audience. People could see it as overacting, but I don't necessarily see it that way. Um, he's using the best, one of the two best tools he has, one of which is his face and the other is his voice, to portray the, um, the emotions a man's feeling. So, you know, he kisses his father on the forehead and notices he's got bruising on his face and then he takes his shirt aside and he's got bruising all up and down his ribs. And so he walks downstairs very quietly and says to his mother, you won't be needing the cup of tea, Ma, I'll go and get the doctor. And then there's a long scene of Williamson walking through Liverpool. Um, there are kids playing on building sites. It's a cloudy and rainy afternoon. Um... You see the hear the boat whistles constantly while he's in there. They're down by the docks in Liverpool, which is probably now a posh place to live, but at the time it wasn't. And he's got to walk a couple of miles to the doctor. He meets the receptionist for the doctor, played by Rachel Roberts, and then meets the doctor who 
comes to the house and um, examines the father and says that it was a heart attack. And as Mick later finds out, the inquest also says that he probably got the injuries from falling down. When Mick gets back to the house, the priest is giving him the final, giving the father the final absolution, and then starts lecturing um, Mick about his own life and about he, how he's strayed from the faith, and how his father said he doesn't have a song in him anymore. Um, Mick's father, John Joe was a famous local Irish tenor. He sang songs in the pubs for the Irish expatriate community. He had a wonderful singing voice. And now this priest tells Mick that Mick doesn't have a song in him anymore. So in between the death and the funeral, Mick goes back to London and finds out that his wife's organised a cocktail party in his absence, being very insensitive to the fact that Mick's father just died and so Mick gets drunk with a mate of his and crashes the cocktail party and here's the bit where he does that and again this is Williamson being brilliant. This clip's a little bit long but I think it illustrates a point about the movie Hello Michael yeah, I see your profits are down on the half yearly just pausing for breath reorganising Putting a bit of method into the deadbeat firms we bought last year. That's how we get the kind of profit that you boys don't want. What exactly do you do to breakfast, Mr. Mike? I'm the man who does the dirty work. That lot over there are all gentlemen. English gentlemen with very clean hands. And when they tell me to, I snap my fingers, just like that. And hundreds of yobbers are queuing up on the dole to keep them in Mercedes. Freddie says a little unemployment never did anybody any harm. Except my dad. What? Except my dad. He was unemployed for most of his life. Really? Really. Let me tell you about my dad. Let me tell you. Quite early on, a Monday morning, high upon... Shut Leave it! Mrs. Marlowe asked me to play it. Leave it! Just a lad of eighteen summers And there's no one can deny As he walked to death that morning He proudly held his head on just before they hung young Kevin in his lonely prison cell, British soldiers tortured Barry just because he would not tell. Marla. What? 
Never knew you were an Irishman. I just left you. As he walked to death that morning, he proudly held his head on high. Now, Jack Gold made this movie particularly to be didactic. It is about class warfare and it is about a man who's stuck between two worlds. He doesn't quite fit into the corporate world, because in the corporate world, he is the head kicker. Now, you get this in politics as well. You get the designated head kicker, the person who will kick ass and act ruthless and aggressive and transgress the rules of polite society so that certain people and certain organisations can move forward. And that's the role Mick Marler has in here. But he's just gone back and his father's died. And while he's there, he visited um, one of his father's mate, a guy called Corky, in a working man's club. Now, the working man's club is interesting. It starts out with a girl and a band singing pop songs, and then they move on to the bingo, and then they move on to a wrestling event. And you see the people there. This is a little like a scene that was in Get Carter a year or two later, and may well have been emulated by Get Carter, where as Mick sits there and he gets involved with the wrestling and he kind of slowly finds himself reverting to the world of his youth. And while he's there, he sees Rachel Roberts' character, the um, receptionist. And they're kind of giving each other the eye. And he's kind of sliding back into his working class roots, into that expatriate Irish Catholic community, the place where people drink a pint of Guinness and go out at night and smoke too much in the working men's clubs and a brawl starts and all of that kind of thing. It's the antithesis of the polite but ruthlessly passive-aggressive cocktail party we just had in that scene that I played. And so he's kind of conflicted between those two worlds. Inevitably, he goes to bed with the receptionist, and Rachel Roberts is very good at the role. She was a very troubled person as well. But um, her character in the film is a kind of working-class woman. She's a works as a receptionist. Her name is Joyce. And she and Nicole Williamson have an assignation in the in a very dodgy park where there's rubbish down by the river and all that kind of thing. And then um, they go back to his parents' home. His mother's away for the night because his father's just died. And they sleep together in his childhood bedroom. He left when he was 17, but his bedroom is still there. And um, obviously she's has a good time of it. He is quite a passionate and considerate lover in spite of the fact that he's an aggressive shit and she kind of ruminates about how things would be very different if he stayed in Liverpool and how um, she has aspirations that her life doesn't allow her to express and it's quite an interesting little role that one. He later sees her walking down the street um, near a block of council flats with a baby in a pram and another toddler running alongside her and um, it's, it's an interesting scene there where 
she kind of represents the life he would have had had he not gone into the army and been successful in the army, been the aggressive sort of person he is, and then moved into the corporate world after being an army officer, rising up through the ranks and becoming a part of this business machine company that he works for. And in the meantime, Cocky, it's not actually Corky, I got that wrong earlier, Cocky, played by a very fine Irish character called J.D. Devlin, tells him about how his father died and the circumstances of it, because he was there at the pub at the time. And later on, Cocky shows him which of the young teddy boys is the one that put the boot into his father and caused him to have the heart attack. And then Mick decides that what he's going to do is find the young guy and kill him, because he has a, an emotional need to do that. The family and his um, old community in Liverpool, the Irish Catholic expatriate community, expects him to do something about it. And based on his upbringing, it's what a man does. If somebody kills your father, you do something about it. It's a very kind of brutal and medieval world in some ways, as opposed to the aristocratic but no less ruthless world he left in London. And so the rest of the movie plays out around that. Williamson, um, yeah, I think this is one of his best roles. I've seen him do some brilliant things. I saw him in The 7% Solution, The Will Be Conspiracy. I haven't seen his Hamlet yet, um, but yeah, and he also played Merlin, of course, in Excalibur, which most people would know him most for. But this one is one of those roles that... Well, it was written with him in mind, of course, but it's one of those roles that lets that full, passive-aggressive, self-loathing, conflicted and complex character that Nicole Williamson played best really come to the fore. There are a couple of other films that he, he did brilliantly in as well around the time, The Bofors Gun being one and Inadmissible Evidence being the other. Um, I'm really going to have to rewatch both of those as well, but I'm really impressed with this. It's Get Carter without the trappings of Hollywood about it. Michael Caine in Get Carter is supposed to play a hard man, but he's got no muscle tone. He's supposed to play a guy from the North, but he's got a Cockney accent. There's a kind of lived-inness to the role of Mick Marler in The Reckoning that is singularly lacking in Get Carter. Yeah, Get Carter plays to the audience, but there's a lot more depth and a lot more layering and a lot more awareness of class difference and awareness of difference in the world that occurs in The Reckoning that doesn't occur in Get Carter, which is a fine crime drama. I'm not trying to dissuade people from appreciating that. But this movie takes a similar situation in a totally different direction. And it does it very, very well. Um, of course, there's a lot of location work there, so they do show, honestly, what Liverpool was like at the time. Sally and I visited Liverpool, in fact, in 2004, and hung around a lot of those places. In fact, the guy who beat up Mick's father in The Reckoning came from the same town as my father-in-law, Bootle, which is a little suburb a bit north of Liverpool in a very rough part of a very rough part of the world. And one of the other things that the reckoning does is it doesn't judge one world as being better or worse than the other. They're both harsh worlds to live in. They're, one of them's got a veneer of sophistication and a veneer of politeness and isn't physically violent. The world he lives in London isn't physically violent. It's economically violent, it's um class based violent 
it's that place where class warfare is taken as the status quo and that sitting at the top of things is the natural order of things. Whereas the world that Mick came from in Liverpool is about poverty and is about religion and is about a, there's a more cohesive sense of community even though it's a fucked up and psychotic and at times misogynistic community it's really um you know the neither but it's better or worse than the other they're just polar opposites on the shittiness scale of human culture though um, this, this is a movie i think is very very underappreciated you can get a copy of it on ebay there is a dvdr version that you can pick up on ebay from a few different sellers and i'm going to do that because i really want to get a copy of this movie um the ebay sellers say that it's a legitimate version that it's an authorized version i don't know how true that is but i think that the movie's worth reassessing and reevaluating. and i do think that nicole williamson's brilliant in it his character's not likable one tiny bit but he's hypnotically watchable he's very easy and very clear to understand and uh, uh, for my money, the movie is better than Get Carter in telling the same kind of story. And I'm not saying that lightly at all. So anyway, I'm going to wrap up the podcast again. Um, as I said, there was another Patreon subscriber to the podcast, my good friend Kerry. So thank you very much, Kerry, for um, your contribution to it. And we also have another podcast subscriber called Kate. And I'm waiting to hear what Kate wants to have as her credit at the end of the podcast, as all Patreon subscribers get. So thank you very much for listening. Again, my throat's not particularly good. I've still got a little bit of that cold lingering here. But um, I I really enjoyed these movies and I enjoyed talking about them. Um, Take care of yourselves. Look after yourselves. Stay warm or stay cold. Um, If you're in North America, in that middle bit of North America in between Mexico and Canada... Wish you all the best over the next few months. You guys are going to need it. And um, in the meantime, as I said, watch movies. Watch good movies. Watch bad movies. Watch them with people you love. Watch them in crowds. Watch them by yourself. But just watch movies. And I'll be back next week with a Martian Drive-In podcast. In two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. And I'll catch you later. Now wait for the credits. There may be some music after it. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers and here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, the foley artist. Alyssa, the location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Kerry, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. 
And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our Director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our Transportation Co-Captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. Strange how the dark makes you remember Strange little things out of the past Things like a chance, casual glance Things like a joke Or like the times we'd smoke that last cigarette why must the dark make me remember all of those things I should forget? Why must I wake from my sleep craving a love that is the dark make me remember all of those things I should forget why must I wake from my sleep craving love 